The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Welcome back, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, this is our last sermon this evening in Revelation chapter 3. We're making progress through the book. I'm looking forward to getting to uh, Revelation chapter 4 with you. Uh, so turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Hope the study is a help to you. It's a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me. I'm just uh, really grateful for how the Lord uh, reveals Scripture to us and how uh, in this particular book, how he ties it back to the Old Testament. It's just a, a, just a magnificent uh, plan of redemption the Lord has laid out really is neat to see. Uh, so tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, title of the sermon, The Lord to the Lukewarm. Uh, this is part two. I think we'll work through the text uh, tonight, I believe. And um, then we'll get into uh, Revelation 4 next time we're together. And we'll begin that portion of the book that really runs from Revelation 4 through Revelation 21 and the apocalyptic section of the book. So I look forward to getting into that with you. So Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read the text together and then we'll pray and look at the word together. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So read that text. I'm not sure we're going to get through that. <laughs> There's a lot there. I'm not sure we're going to make it all the way through tonight. We're going to give it a, a good college try here and see how far we get this evening. Uh, it's a wonderful word from our Lord uh, to the church at Laodiceans and very helpful for us. Uh, let's pray and then dig into this together. Uh, Father in heaven, very grateful to you uh, for your instruction of the churches, uh, how you are the head of the church given uh, over all things to be head to your church and sovereign, the one who walks amongst the lampstands, uh, having not left us as orphans, but you've come to us and you have visited us by your spirit. You are with us according to your promise till the end of the age. And we know that you care for us, Lord. And so we look to you for instruction. We look to you for encouragement, for strength, for supply. We look for, to you for wisdom. And we look to you, Lord, for correction, for rebuke, for reproof. And we need all of it, Lord, if uh, we are to persevere in the faith as your faithful witnesses in this uh, age of tribulation. And so help us, Lord. We know that ultimately you are the one who preserves us. And so we look to you in faith uh, for the strength that we need. 
and trust you, Lord. You are uh, preeminently trustworthy and faithful. Even when we are faithful, f- faithless, you are faithful and cannot deny yourself. And so thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy to us in this. Pray that you'd be with us now as we consider your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord to the lukewarm, part two, Revelation chapter three, verses 14 through 22. Uh, so tonight we continue our in-depth consideration of this text the Lord's address to the lukewarm church at Laodicea. These things says the amen. Right? The one in whom are all the promises of God, yes, and the one in whom all the promises of God are amen to the glory of God. He is in opposition or in contrast, as it were, to every other person uh, that we know. He is the faithful and true witness. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And furthermore, he is the beginning of the creation of God, the prototakos, or the, the preeminent one, the arche, the first fruits of a new creation, never to die again, the ruler of the eschatological and everlasting kingdom, the one who has been given as head over all things to the church. He now is the one who addresses the church in Laodicea, and he addresses the church in the midst of her trial in the midst of her tribulation. Uh, As the Lord does to each of the churches, the Lord's address to these churches, his primary concern is the state of their conduct, ultimately the state of their witness, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of tribulation. So his concern is the, the perseverance in faithfulness of the church militant in an age of persecution. The church has been given a mission to do. Uh, This is not a spectator activity, as it were. Uh, You've been employed, you've been blood-bought, and you've been put out into the mission field. The church has been given the Great Commission, the Great Commission of the church. So we have a job to do, and the Lord not just sort of giving us the manual and cutting us loose, the Lord has empowered us for mission. He has given us of his spirit, the very outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost for the purpose of empowering his church for mission. We are sent then as a light into a dark place, dispelling the darkness with the preaching of the gospel. And we are a means by which the Lord, even now, gathers together his elect and builds that spiritual temple, one living stone upon another. So how have the churches then responded in their time of tribulation? Uh, How have they fared? Have they been faithful like the church at Philadelphia? Or have they been compromised like the church at Sardis? And frankly, the challenge facing the church at Laodicea now in Revelation chapter 3 is a challenge really that is faced by many a church in our own day. We can relate, as we have related to the challenges faced by other churches, we can relate to this challenge uh, faced by the church at Laodicea um, because we see a lot of common ground with the church at Laodicea in terms of their circumstance. They were wealthy, comfortable, and how has the church fared Or how has the church responded? How has the church conducted herself in response to her wealth and her comfort? In response to uh, leisures and ease in Laodicea? And as we'll see, looking at our text, the Lord has charged them with being lukewarm. Concerned with the cares of this life, the Lord has described Laodicea as useless in the cause of the kingdom. And I think that this plagues the modern day church today. 
that concerned more with the cares of this life, the modern-day professing church has been largely useless in the true preaching of the gospel, in the spread of the true gospel, in seeing the cause of the kingdom in this wicked and perverse generation pushed forward. I think if the, if the church had been faithful, we'd see a whole lot more persecution <laughs> than what we do, a lot less taking of our ease, a lot less comfort, a lot less leisure, and a lot more tribulation. The church in our generation, I think, has a lot to learn from the Lord's rebuke of this church in Laodicea. So we begin first with the Lord's assessment of their conduct in verse 15. The Lord's assessment of their conduct. He says, verse 15, I know your works. This is the all-knowing, omnipotent Lord Jesus Christ, the one who himself has all of the attributes of deity, including omniscience and omnisapience. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, So then, because you are lukewarm, it's the character of their conduct, and we'll explain that in a moment. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So in verse 15, what we see is that the Lord uses physical characteristics in and around Laodicea. Their physical characteristics are used to draw attention to a severe spiritual problem In the church, Laodicea sat in the Lycus Valley between the cities of Herapolis and Colossae. Uh, um, The Lycus Valley in the western part of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Herapolis was known for its hot water springs. People would flock, as we talked about last week, people would flock to Herapolis for the medicinal qualities of the water, the hot springs in Herapolis. And then Colossae, Colossae was known for refreshingly cold water that flowed down to Colossae, Colossae off of Mount Cadmus there in the Lycus, near the Lycus Valley. So Herapolis, known for its hot water springs, Colossae known for its refreshingly cool water, and Laodicea, by comparison, essentially had no, drinking, no drinkable water supply. Laodicea was without a drinkable water supply. Laodicea built an aqueduct to transport hot water six miles from Herapolis into the city of Laodicea and then built an aqueduct to transport cold water 11 miles from Colossae. The problem was that by the time it made the trek six miles from Herapolis or 11 miles from Colossae, the water that arrived in Laodicea was tepid. It was lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Now, in addition to this water supply problem in Laodicea, Archaeological evidence actually indicates that in the water supply of Laodicea itself, there was a calcium carbonate content in the water that would have actually caused vomiting. It would have caused nausea to have drank that to drink to drink that water, to consume that water. So think with me. The hot water in Herapolis was useful. The cold water in Colossae was useful, but the water in Laodicea was useless, tepid, lukewarm, nauseating. So consider the spiritual reality. What is the Lord doing here? The Lord is drawing attention to physical characteristics in Laodicea, a physical illustration, if you will, 
of their circumstances in Laodicea to point to a severe spiritual problem in the church. Consider the spiritual reality. This is how the Lord thought of their spiritual condition. They were tepid, lukewarm, good for nothing. Good for nothing but to be vomited out of the mouth. The word vomited is a violent word in the Greek. It's a forceful word. I'm going to spew you, the old King James says. Spew you out of the mouth. Like the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, they had lost their first love. They no longer exhibit a love for the Lord Jesus Christ in their conduct. They are called to a holy zeal in verse 9, in 19, which means they had no zeal. Those professing Christians in the church at Laodicea are apathetic. We did a sermon as part of the Essential series here some time ago in which we dealt with the sin of apathy from this text. Okay, I uh, encourage that to you. The church at Laodicea was obviously moralistic or formalistic. They had a, a form of godliness, but they denied its power. Given over to moralism or formalism. Neither cold nor hot, but tepid, lukewarm, useless, putrid, nauseating, ready to be vomited out of the mouth. I don't know about you, but there there are times when I can read through a text of scripture, and because I'm moving a little too quickly or moving, frankly, uh, more thoughtlessly than I should, I don't realize the full impact or the full weight of what's being said in the text. And if you stop to think about what the Lord is saying to this church in Laodicea, this is a severe rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I'm ready to vomit you out of my mouth. It is a staggering, a stunning rebuke. Notice in in verse 15, once again, it's their works. It's their works that give evidence of their spiritual condition. What the Lord is rebuking is their spiritual condition. What gives evidence of the spiritual condition of their heart? Their works. The Lord says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I look at your works, and from your works, I can tell, we'll explain in a moment, you are neither cold nor hot. Their testimony, their witness, gives evidence of a lack of zeal. How did the church at Laodicea fare in their wealth, fare in their comforts? They lacked zeal. The Lord corrects them and calls them to a holy zeal. In verse 19, it lacked enthusiasm. It lacked fervency. It lacked earnestness. Gives evidence here. Their works give evidence of a lack of devotion, a lack of love, a lack of usefulness to the kingdom. Jesus Christ describes himself here as the faithful and true witness The church at Laodicea is anything but. The Laodiceans are apathetic, tepid, without affection for the Lord, without passion, without zeal. They are lukewarm, dull, joyless, and heartless. That's the reality of their conduct. In the Lord's illustration, using the water supply of Laodicea, the surrounding area, to describe their spiritual condition, This is what their conduct says about their heart. This is what their conduct says about them. Now, that's the reality. That's the picture that the Lord is painting for us. What's the reason? What's the reason? What does the Lord mean by referring to them as lukewarm? Many misinterpret the text to refer to a contrast between hot and cold Christians. I can't tell you how many times I've heard... um, 
this text interpreted that way. As a contrast between hot and cold Christians, those Christians on fire for the Lord uh, and those cold Christians who really don't look like Christians at all who uh, are being tempted to apostasy. Um, And the Lord says, I wish you were cold. I wish you were just fully apostate and made your feelings about me clear. Or I wish you were hot on fire for the Lord. That's not the intent of the text. It's not the intent of the text. Just like the waters of Laodicea were tepid and lukewarm, they were tepid and lukewarm because they were far from the source of their usefulness. Far from the source of that heat that was produced in Herapolis and far from the source of that cold, refreshing water that came down out of Mount Cadmus in Colossae. Do you see? Far from the source. And the way that the Lord uh, gives the illustration, it's obvious the hearts of these people. The hearts of these people are far from the source of their life and godliness. How else are we to describe lukewarm, tepid, useless, so-called professing Christians? They're far from Jesus Christ. Far from Jesus Christ. Anyone who's near to the source, anyone who is vitally connected to the Lord Jesus Christ as a branch to the living vine produces much fruit, right? That's what the Lord says in John chapter 10, produces much fruit. But when you become detached from the living vine, you are no good for anything but to be gathered up, put together and tossed into the fire and burned. Here, these people are far from the source of their life far from the source of their fruitfulness. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. They honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. That departure, that their distance from the source of their life, the source of their godliness, the source of their zeal and supply and strength and hope and joy, being far from him, the Lord Jesus Christ, their departure, that departure, that distance made evident in their conduct and how they conduct themselves. How does a person begin to conduct themselves when they're far from the Lord Jesus Christ that way? How did that, what, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, that looks like no zeal, no heart, no love, no fervency, no earnestness. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's distant. It's cool. It's, in, in, in many churches, you'll see it as, a, as formalism. Going through religious motions for the sake of religious motions We're going to do these things because we think they are the right things to do. And we're going to pride ourselves in the fact that we have done them well. And they're far from Jesus Christ. It's the traditionalism of the Pharisees that exhibits that kind of heartless formalism or that kind of heartless moralism. The Pharisees far, far from the source of life and godliness. Okay? They honor him with their lips. Their hearts are far from him. That departure is seen or evidenced, is observable in their conduct. And that departure first takes place in the heart. By the time it reaches the conduct, by the time it's exhibited in your actions, the departure has already taken place in the heart. The heart is, the well is already poisoned before the bitter water is ever spewed out. Do you see? He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one in whom 
all of their promises, all of the promises made to the church find their fulfillment. He is the yes, he is the amen, the faithful and true witness. He is our forerunner, the one who has inaugurated the new creation, the beginning, the arche, the ruler, the source of every spiritual blessing that we've been given, the source of every blessing. He is the source of that blessing. And listen, it's not like he just, and this is the way many people view their Christian life, right? That he just gives it to us, like I would hand my watch to Noel, right? Noel would take it from me, and now it's, and I, I have these blessings now, they're mine. As if Jesus Christ is, is separated from those blessings, and I don't need him anymore, I've got it. I have eternal life. I have every spiritual blessing. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. When we're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is our salvation. He becomes our righteousness. He is from God wisdom and sanctification and righteousness, right? We are vitally, vitally connected to him, and it's by virtue of our union with him that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with him. We are seated, as it were, in heavenly places. How? By virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So nothing that we've been given, no gift, no gift that ever comes to us from God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is ever separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to me life everlasting. Do you see? And when we get far, when we become disconnected from the source in our heart, it's bound to show up in how we act, bound to show up in how we worship, (laughs) or really how we don't worship. And it's vomitous. It's disgusting. It's 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 an empty, counterfeit, sham religion. Empty, it's a husk of a thing. Good for nothing, but to be bound up and thrown into the fire and burned. Is the reason for the Lord's rebuke of Old Testament Israel many times. Your solemn assemblies are disgusting to me, the Lord would say to Israel. I'm weary of enduring your worship, God would say to Old Testament Israel. Why? They honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Do you see? He is the source of our strength, the source of our hope, the source of our joy. It has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So what is the moral of the story, brothers and sisters? We got to cling to Christ. He is our all. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. We have to cling to him in faith. Christ says, verse 15, I wish you were cold or hot. I wish you were close to the source on this side or close to the source on that side. I wish you were useful. I wish you were fruitful. I wish you were zealous. I wish you were a, a, a faithful and true witness. So then, so then, because you are lukewarm, because your conduct says that you're neither cold nor hot, because you are far from me, far from the source of your life and godliness because you are useless, because you are apathetic and lukewarm and tepid, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. The Lord essentially says, you make me sick. You make me sick. The Lord would look upon most of what passes for a church in our day and he would say, you make me sick. God's people. God's people, we look on that kind of empty, hypocritical, self-righteous, 
moralistic, formalistic show of religion. And God's people like, oh, that just, it, it grieves, grieves your heart, doesn't it? Just makes us sick. What would be, what would be the conduct that would lead to such an indictment? The Lord says, I know your works. Well, what kind of works would draw such a severe rebuke from the Lord? From the Lord? Heartless works, heartless, moralistic works, formalistic works, loveless works, self-righteous works, self-reliant works, self-serving works, hypocritical works. Those works are useless. Empty worship, right? empty worship. Entertaining the goats rather than God's people worshiping the living God. You see this example, frankly, you see this example in how the Lord feels about uh, them in his interaction with the Pharisees. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Let's look at a text together with respect to that. The Lord breaks it down for the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. Look at Mark chapter 7 verse 1. Then the Pharisees, some of the scribes, came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands, they have broken the ceremonial law. They're man-made, mind you, uh, additions to the ceremonial law. They found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of God. No, it's holding the tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat bread with unwashed hands. Why do you ignore our traditional form of worship? He answered and said to them, verse six, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Interesting to me that um, the Lord was actually uh, accused of being harsh and severe <laughs> in his words. Is Lord harsh here? No. The Lord is direct and truthful and honest. They are a bunch of hypocrites, and the Lord does not shrink back from telling them exactly what they are. You are a bunch of hypocrites. As it is written, this people, this, uh, quoting Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they begin by teaching those doctrines, teaching their traditions as the commandments of men. Four, verse eight, laying aside. Now, in order to do that, they have to lay aside the commandment of God. So laying aside the commandment of God, verse eight, now you hold the tradition of men. What have they done? Taken the commandments of God, and they've said, you know what? I'm gonna set that aside, and we're gonna put our traditions in their place, And we're going to hold to our traditions. Um, We can take it from here, God. We'll do this ourselves. 
They lay aside the commandment of God. You hold the tradition of men, the watching of pitchers and cups and many other such things as you do. He said to them, verse nine, all too well in doing this, you reject the commandment of God. So from teaching their traditions, the commandments of men, they lay aside the commandment of God in order to hold the tradition of men, and then they reject the commandment of God altogether so that, verse 9, you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. He who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, notice the contrast between what God says and what they say. You say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit from you might have, been, uh, might have been received from me is a gift, a gift to God, korban, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. That's one example of many. Moralistic, self-righteous works are useless in the worship of God. Moralistic, self-righteous, self-serving, hypocritical works are useless in the spread of the gospel, useless to the cause of Christ, useless to the kingdom, useless in our own sanctification, our own growth, useless in the edification of the body, useless in our relationship with God, the one who has told us how we are to worship him, They're going through here in in Mark chapter 7, they're going through external religious motions. This is what you get when men come up with religion. This is man-made religion. When men get around and they think to themselves, how should we worship God? This is what you end up with is garbage like this, right? It's useless. They're going through motions. Under pretense, they presume to honor the Lord with their lips, but their heart is far from him. You know, how many times do I have to spin the wheel and say the prayer? Uh, let me see if I do it again. Uh, maybe I do it louder. He's be more pleased with that. Uh. <laughs> Certainly, Laodicea would have thought themselves to be doing just fine. In fact, they viewed themselves as needing nothing, verse 17. We don't need you, Lord. We've got it. We'll take it from here. The Lord's indictment of their conduct would have come as a complete shock to them. They would have been of those who who would say, Lord, Lord, what are we doing in torment here? Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonders in your name? And the Lord would have said to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It would have come as a shock. Now that wretched state of affairs begins in the heart of sinful man. Bitter water comes from a polluted well. And the the heart of the problem is a problem with the heart. Do you see? And what is that problem exactly? The the Lord judges according to their works. He, He judges according to their conduct. And what then is the condition that has poisoned the well? Verse 17. Here's the condition that has poisoned the well. Because you say, notice they say, I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What they say, what they claim, is contrasted with reality. Those professing Christians in the church at Laodicea had no real understanding of the depth of their need. 
I am rich. I've become wealthy, and I need nothing. That's someone who is, uh, has no understanding of their need, right? I need nothing. You don't know. You are wretched. They do not see themselves as they really are. So their lukewarm, useless conduct is the evidence their worthless religion bears witness to a sinful self-reliance, an empty self-confidence, a self-righteousness that has taken root in the heart. Our circumstances are not the cause of our sinful heart condition. Do you see? It's not our circumstances. Our circumstances don't cause that. A wealthy man can be a godly man. But our circumstances often reveal or expose a sinful problem in the heart, don't they? They often expose a sinful condition that is already there. That's exactly what's happened in Laodicea. Complaining, discontentment, anger, selfishness, a brazen or ignorant self-reliance. They've placed an empty confidence in their material circumstances that's led them far away from the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't need him anymore. And their works bear witness. Loveless, joyless, heartless, apathetic, lukewarm, tepid, nauseating. And how often was Israel warned of the very same? I want you to see this. Israel warned, warned of this very danger. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Israel warned of the very same danger. And this is a warning for Israel, but the, the principle here applies to us also, doesn't it? Verse 11, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. How is it that they would be tempted to forget the Lord their God? By not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. In other words, what the Lord is talking about here is not just um, the, the, the remembrance of him is somehow leaked out of their brains. And I can't remember any longer. Who was that that we, didn't we, Worship someone that brought us out of Egypt and, you know, you remember what happened back then? It wasn't that they would forget that he existed. How is it that the Israelites forgot their God? They forgot their God by not obeying him. That's how you forget God. You forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes. Lest, verse 12, when you have eaten and are full have built beautiful houses and dwell in them when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. How? By not obeying him who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which there were fiery serpents and scorpions and a thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and he might test you and to do you good in the end. In other words, look at all the Lord has done for you. The Lord who has saved you, caused you to be born again, brought you to life from the dead, forgiven you of your sin, cleansed you, and dwelt you with his spirit, given you a new heart, given you a new nature, seated you in the heavenly places with Christ, adopted you as his son in his household, given you a place in the kingdom, caused you to inherit, given you all these blessings, and then somehow you forget the Lord your God? Do you see the, the contrast here? Then you say, verse 17, you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. 
Verse 18, and you shall remember the Lord your God. If forgetting the Lord was not keeping his commandments, what does remembering the Lord look like? Looks like keeping his commandments, <laughs> turning back to the Lord, right? You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be if you by any means forget the Lord your God by disobeying him and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Calvin said, riches do not in their own nature hinder us from following God. But in consequence of the depravity of the human mind, it is scarcely possible for those who have so great abundance to avoid being intoxicated by them. Brothers and sisters, we live in the richest period of world history in the richest country on the planet ever in the richest generation this one wealthier than the last and not by a little we have to remember the lord our god and not be intoxicated by our and listen not just intoxicated by the wealth that we have but what that wealth has a tendency to tempt us to which is taking our leisure, taking our ease, taking our comfort, and rendering us, because of a heart that is far from Jesus Christ, rendering us useless. How do you fight that temptation? How do we, how do we, how do we overcome in our generation, a generation that is, this, that is this wealthy beyond compare? How do we overcome? By maintaining a closeness to the source of our life and godliness by clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ as a vine to the branch. Abide in him and he in us and produce great fruit. Right? We are to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wealth, comfort, ease, these are the circumstances in which the weed of lukewarmness can flourish when we are entertained, amused, distracted, when we feel safe, we feel secure, we begin to think we don't need anything. We're healthy and well. You may not verbalize that out of your mouth. I don't need anything. You'd say, I need the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does your prayer life say about your need? What does your Bible reading say about your need? What is, like, um, are you going through the motions or do you need him? And what's that going to look like in your conduct? The Lord says, I know your works. And your works say about you that your heart is far from the source. Do you see? Um, circumstances, these circumstances often re reveal or expose self-reliance. It's that, that faithless, unbelieving, self-reliant heart that leads the Laodiceans to say to themselves in verse 17, I have rich, I have become wealthy have need of nothing. Their idolatrous self-reliance has hardened their heart to the truth through the deceitfulness of sin. It has dulled their senses. It has deafened their ears, distracted them from the truth. And they do not know 
with eyes over their, or hands over their eyes and fingers stuffed in their ears. They don't know that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The true condition of the lukewarm, they're wretched. They've lost sight of their need. They lost, they've lost sight of the Lord's goodness and grace and mercy. They are living like formalistic, moralistic Pharisees, as it were. God becomes virtually irrelevant, and they render themselves practical atheists. I don't need him. They go to church every Sunday, go through the motions, they say the prayers, and they do the thing, they check the box. And that wretched lukewarmness, that, that distant heart has robbed them of their source of life and godliness, robbed them of true joy. As much as their wealth, I want you to think with me for a moment. As much as their wealth may have contributed to their ease, to their, their hearts being lifted up, just like the Lord's warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8, as much as their physical wealth may have contributed to that, in Laodicea, and for reasons we won't really have time to talk about tonight, the true ground of their counterfeit comfort likely wasn't their material wealth or their physical comforts, but rather their spiritual blindness. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, it, was their, it was their spiritual blindness rather than physical comfort that led to such false religion or to such a hollow profession. And here is a contributing factor of that, and maybe you'll see connection with Laodicea to the church in our day. They thought they had spiritual riches. We run into people when we're witnessing like that all the time. I don't need anything. I've been forgiven. Why are you talking to me about obedience? We don't need to obey. I've got everything I need. I've been saved, been forgiven of my sin. I know Jesus is with me. <laughs> I don't need to do anything. They believe they have infinite and eternal spiritual riches. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved me. Right? When I was four and I walked the aisle and I said the prayer, I've lived like a little demon ever since, but I was saved when, when that happened. Or people who are entirely detached, entirely detached from any vital connection to the Lord Jesus Christ in his church and in his people and in his worship and his praise, in his word. They're entirely detached. And yet they think because of something they've done or because something they've experienced or because some wolf in sheep's clothing stood up and said, this is all that you need. This is all that you need. Peace, peace, they say when there is no peace to the wicked. Peace, peace. They've heard the heal, they've healed the hurt of my, the daughter of my people too easily, the Lord says, weakly. And they've taken that in, hook, line, and sinker. They've believed the lie. They have a Bible in their lap. They can look if they wanted to. They believe the lie, and they comfort themselves. I have everything I need. Spiritual riches. When I die, I'm going to heaven. And listen, every person, every funeral I've ever been to, except the ones here, every funeral I've ever been to, they've whisked that person into heaven the moment that they close their eyes in this life, 
because of some experience or because of some, you know, because they, they donned the doors of a church once when they were 14, you know, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. But um, they believe that they have been given spiritual riches. I'm going to be, I've heard it several times and it's uh, nauseating to me. I want to vomit it out of my mouth. Um, they've been kicking up gold dust in heaven since the day they died on Wednesday or, or you know, kicking up gold dust in heaven. You know, things like that. Um, so follow along with me. I think the church at Laodicea was presumptuous. They believe they have all that they need. They believe that they have spiritual riches. They were a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, given spiritual blessings, and they claimed those spiritual riches and forgot the source of those spiritual riches. They gloated in, reveled in the gift and forgot the giver, the one who gives the gift. They thought they had spiritual riches, salvation, eternal life, inheritance in the kingdom, and they were spiritually bankrupt. Their overly confident presumption led to apathy, lukewarmness, a distance from God. And how many times, brothers and sisters, if you've been witnessing for any length of time, you've talked to person after person after person after person after person after person who thinks and believes just like this. No connection whatsoever with the Lord Jesus Christ. They've forgotten about him, although they believe that all of those spiritual riches are theirs. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save them. No, there, no further work was necessary. You see how this ties in with our generation? It ties in with the modern day church? This is what's being spouted. Self-reliance is a deadly deception. It's faithlessness. It's unbelief. The only way to address it is with the gospel. Finally, Verse 18, we then have uh, the concern of the lukewarm in verse 18. The Lord says, what should be the concern of the lukewarm? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be truly rich. White garments that you may be truly clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I counsel you to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Again, drawing on their physical circumstances in Laodicea as a medical capital of the region with the ophthalmology a practice there. We don't need the wealth of Laodicea, the wealth of the nations. We need the gold that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We buy it without money, praise God. We buy it without price, and he gives it freely through faith. We don't need the fashionable garments of the fashion industry in Laodicea. What we need, what we really need are the white garments of Christ's righteousness. In attempting to clothe themselves with worldly raiment, Laodiceans were actually shamefully naked. It's in Jesus Christ that that shame is taken away. Blinded by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lukewarm Laodiceans couldn't see their true spiritual condition through faith in Christ that the Lord then anoints our eyes that we may see. Uh, we're given spiritual sight by his spirit, anointed to see, so to speak. And it's only through faith in Christ that we see things as they truly are, as they really are. You have your eyes opened and all of a sudden reality comes pouring in in technicolor splendor. We see things more the way that God sees them. 
And when we see things more the way that God sees them, we flee to Christ as all our hope and stay. Why? Because we have an indication, we have an understanding of our own need. We see ourselves the way that we truly are. And every single human being born in Adam is in great need of Jesus Christ. As many as I love then, verse 19, I rebuke and chasten. The Lord expressing his love to this church. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus Christ loves us enough to confront us in our sin. Sometimes that, that loving confrontation comes through the means of a loving brother or sister. And because it comes through the means of a loving brother and sister, brother or sister, it's the tendency of self-righteous, hard-hearted, hypocritical people to reject it out of hand and to slander that person as unloving <laughs> and you know, harsh or severe happens a dime a dozen. Happens all the time. If the Lord Jesus Christ himself were to come, right? Um, <laughs> the rich man, Lazarus, Come tell my brothers, you know, listen, they're not going to listen. If, they, if they're not going to listen to God's word, they're not going to listen to one we're raised from the dead. <laughs> what should be the concern then of the apathetic, verse 19, zeal and repentance, a zealous repentance. You are lukewarm, the Lord says, I call you to zeal. How is that done? How is that done? They have to attach themselves to the vine. They have to abide in him and he in them. You have to get close to the source of our life and godliness. To get close to the source of living water, you have to stand in the fountain. <laughs> we need to understand our need. How, how do we do that? A diligent effort in the means of grace. We, unlike the Israelites who forgot God in Deuteronomy 8, we obey his commandments and keep his statutes and judgments and we are careful to do them. Obedience to his commands, fellowship with his people, evangelism, faithful and true witness. We are to labor to abide in him as he is so gracious and merciful to promise his abiding presence with us. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Conduct of the lukewarm, the condition of the lukewarm, the concern of the lukewarm. What is the confidence of the lukewarm? The confidence of the lukewarm are the promises contained in his word. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in to him. It doesn't say I will come into his heart. <laughs> I will come into him. No, it's I will come in to the church, to him, and dine with him and he with me. That is, we'll have communion with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus Christ is standing outside the doors of this church, the church at Laodicea. It's his church and he's standing outside. If you open the door through faith in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of his abiding presence with us, the promise of our reign with him, the confidence that he'll be with us even to the end of the age. So we turn from a lukewarm, tepid apathy for the sin that it is. And we turn in repentance and we turn in remembrance to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
pour yourself into the means of grace, pour yourself into serving the Lord, pour yourself into knowing and meditating on his word, all the glorious reasons why he is worthy of our full devotion, our most diligent effort, our earnest zeal. And then we pursue that devotion with zeal. We pursue joy in him with zeal. We pursue preaching the truth to others with zeal and with earnestness and with enthusiasm and with fervency. Always looking to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. Considering the shame of it all a small thing. Who has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 22. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Interesting, in the Lord's letter to Laodicea, not one word of commendation or praise, but much reassurance of the Lord's patience and the Lord's kindness and the Lord's compassion and the Lord's mercy. Sending the letter is a grace. Sending the letter is mercy. Have you ever found yourself in this condition? this condition that's reflected by the church at Laodicea. Maybe you're in this condition to some degree or another now. It's sin. There's no question about that. That's the way the Lord would see it. You cannot stay there. You cannot stay in that condition. The works give evidence of a lukewarm devotion to Christ. That sin begins in the heart. Abide in him and he'll abide in you. It's a promise we have from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's pardon and there is forgiveness if you will turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. And when we turn to him, we're to labor, we're to obey, we're to pursue, uh, pursue him, following him, hungry and thirsting after righteousness, but we have the promise of his abiding presence. And he that began a work in you will complete it. Um, the Lord will work in you as you labor to serve him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for these promises in your word, even from this, uh, this severe, this stunning rebuke to the church at Laodicea. There's much here, Lord, that, that we should consider of ourselves. May it not be named among us that we are in any way lukewarm, that we would say or could be said of us that we were far from the source of our life and godliness. May we turn at your reproof and cling tightly to you as a branch that is vitally connected to the vine. Help us, Lord, strengthen us to abide in you as your disciples to abide in your word, if we are your disciples indeed. And we thank you for the promise that you will abide in us. And through us, Lord, and through your abiding presence with us, and through our uh, abiding presence, faith in you, I pray, God, that for the glory of your name, you would produce much fruit. Uh, May our fruits give evidence. May they be a testimony. May they bear witness of your spirit at work in this church, your grace and mercy to your church, your sovereignty over, over your church, your love and your compassion for your church. May they magnify your great and gracious and merciful name into eternity. It's for your glory, the glory of your name that we pray these things. Amen.